0: Welcome to The Bell Podcast, a production of Mental Health America of Kentucky. I'm your host, Marcy Timmerman. Today I am honored to bring you an interview we did with Judge Ginger Lerner Wren. Judge Wren is a county court judge in Broward County, Florida, the 17th Judicial Court. She started the first mental health court in the country. She is also the author of A Court of Refuge and a well-regarded national speaker. And you'll hear some of that information again as we did start the interview that way. Um, But I thought it was important to capture her, her good spirits and her amazing words about Kentucky. Judge Lerner Wren joins us from Broward County, Florida. She is a county court judge there, a misdemeanor court. And she runs what I believe is the first mental health court in the country. Right. So that's why she is here to speak to us not only about mental health court but also about her experiences and her extreme knowledge with therapeutic jurisprudence, as well as mental health stigma and families and, and what she sees in her courtroom every day.
1: Okay.
0: How do you think? <laughs> there we go. I can't wait to get back to my
1: courtroom. <laughs> <You're back. laughs> Honestly, the Zoom I is get off the zooming,
0: right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the first questions we should talk about is explain what a mental health court is, because you are our first guest um, to talk about mental health court as a a whole.
1: First of all, I'm so privileged to do that. And I'm so proud of, of, you know, Kentucky and Owensboro and and Judge Davies, who I've met. Uh, You have your own mental health court there. And I read about it. And it's doing so phenomenally well. So I think that we have to go back in time. Uh, a little bit, Marcy, and, and really start to uh, talk about, you know, problem-solving courts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the mid-'80s, you know, in, ironically, in South Florida, we were having a, a really big problem in our, in our court system, as every court system was around the country. But, but Miami, in terms of the cocaine epidemic, you know, those those Miami Vice days and the cocaine cowboys. And Miami was, in fact, an epicenter. And at the time, a few things were going on at, at the same time. But first of all, ironically, uh, former U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, who passed away, you know, several years ago, sadly, was at the time the, the Dade County State Attorney, And she was working in the criminal courts and really recognized very clearly that these prosecutions of people with drug offenses, you know, they really were not making any sense because what she was seeing is that individuals, you know, were getting arrested. And if it was for cocaine, that was and still is uh, a felony charge, it's not a minor offense and that people were being prosecuted. They'd go to prison. They were spending elongated times in prison. They were not getting any treatment. This was not viewed as a behavioral health problem or an addictive disorder. It was viewed as a crime. People would then get released. They would recidivate and they would come back again. And in addition to that, of course, the impact to families and communities was significant and consequential. You know, once you have a criminal record, you know, it's awfully difficult to find work. And, and once you have an addictive disorder and maybe underlying mental health disorders to boot without treatment, you know, it's pretty hopeless. And so while, while she was realizing that, in, 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 down in, in her court system at the time, there were two really visionary law professors, one from the University of Miami, Bruce Winnick, a dear friend who passed away uh, in 2010, sadly, and David Wexler, who is internationally renowned, both distinguished scholars. And they got together. Professor Wexler was at the University of Miami on a sabbatical. His his mom lived in Miami Beach and he he came to visit. And this is when mental health law was really emerging as as a new field in the law. And mental health law, you know, has some really, I think, uh, beautiful principles related to disability rights, related to human rights. And that relates to choice. It relates to voluntariness. It relates to dignity. You know, and that and underscoring just that whole dignity framework. And And what they were started as scholars do you know, really thinking about mental health law and looking at the legal decisions that were coming out. And they really had this notion, this idea that, you know, this just doesn't look very therapeutic. These proceedings that are going on for people that were being petitioned, you know, under a civil petition for involuntary civil commitment. And they were reading, you know, the case law and the opinions and nobody was given voice and, you know, there was so much stigma uh, surrounding mental illness in the legal system generally that you didn't have proceedings that really, you know, honored, I feel that, and they felt that honored due process and were really legitimate. A lot of these hearings were held in back rooms and in hospitals. You had judges that really were not trained. In mental health, you have lawyers that were not trained in law school in mental health. Uh, so they thought about, well, wait a minute, you know, what if we could bend legal process, recognizing that when you're in a courtroom, you know, there's or or any kind of legal proceeding, you know, there's these invisible, if you will, psychological forces that You know, have an impact on the people that are coming before the court. Do they feel, for example, Marcy, that they are being heard? Are they given voice? How are they being treated by the judge or the hearing officer or the magistrate? You know, do they really have what you would would they defined as the perception that they were being treated fairly, that there was respect, that there was dignity. And so therapeutic jurisprudence, which they recognize, and certainly Professor Winnick uh, used to talk about this in in many of his presentations, that that therapeutic jurisprudence wasn't maybe the best, (laughs) you know titles, but it worked uh, for them. but in the field we call it TJ. And it really goes towards the, the the concept that whether we are in a courtroom or maybe we're working with clients like I was at the time of a public guardian situation that you know how can we level a playing field? How can we build connectivity? How can we promote trust, respect, and dignity while we are adhering to the rule of law? And so there is a very profound procedural justice plank uh, of TJ. And at the time, they they really went on quite a, a national campaign. And they really presented their their writings uh, and essays on TJ their thoughts their work got accepted by the National Institute of Health and before you knew it you know Janet Reno had found out about this law reform science of TJ and applied it and innovated the very first drug court in the United States which was in 1989 again ironically in South Florida So the idea, you know, that that from a problem solving now court vantage point, we could offer treatment over punishment, Mm -hmm. over incarceration, that we could have an alternative to jail or prison and that we could do it in a way that does promote dignity, that will help people feel Well, if I was treated fairly, then the idea was, even if you don't necessarily agree with the judge, maybe, perhaps, you'll be more inclined to embrace and accept the court's rulings. And that's really from a problem-solving court historic overview. That is where TJ first got formally applied was in was in the drug court so that was in 1989 and fast forward to the to the early mid 90s when i came to the bench technically in 1996 but i began in 97 we had some real problems in our jurisdiction having to do with the criminalization of people with mental illnesses and i just came to the bench with some very unique skill sets uh, because of my experiences as a lawyer and as working for the protection and advocacy system in Florida and the work I was doing on a federal class action. And I think there was a lot of synchronicity.
0: That makes sense. So for Mm -hmm. my understanding, a mental health court, like a thumbnail, how it's usually talked about is that it's always a misdemeanor situation. Uh, Not always.
1: OK, no. good. <laughs> it began, though. It, that's true, though, Marcy. You're right in the sense that the first generation of these courts did begin on the low on the misdemeanor level, pretty quickly jumped to the felony level. But the truth of the matter is, you know, whether it's on the adult criminal level or even in the juvenile level. Mm-hmm. problem solving justice, you know, and mental health diversion, and all these wonderful strategies that we need so badly, and especially now, are so important.
0: Good point. So I understand that participants are there voluntarily, though, always. always the case. That's I thought, And that they are basically agreeing to participate in treatment instead of going through the general criminal process. Is that a fair...
1: I think, well, yeah, of course. I think that the thing that about Broward County and why it was called a Court of Refuge is really part of, you know, we talk about lived experience, you know, in terms of consumers and peers, but really, you know, we have lived experience as lawyers and judges. And our lived experience in our criminal justice system was really very challenging and you know we recognized and I just think that I am so grateful for our community I always say you know we just really got it we had amazing advocates from our from our local chapter of NAMI Um, They were just fierce advocates, recognized national advocates that said, you know, we need to do something because my son, my daughter needs help. And they are literally cycling in and out of hospitals, jails, crisis upon crisis upon crisis, and something has to happen. And, in, in, and it did happen. That really goes toward, I think, the story of a high-profile case. Usually it's always some crisis that precipitates innovation. Our crisis came down not only to our jail overcrowding because of the over-representation of individuals being arrested with serious mental illnesses and other neurodiverse disorders. But the the endless cycling, the dehumanizing traumatic cycling of, of people. And we did have a very high profile case involving a young man by the name of Aaron Wynn, which my book is dedicated to. And, you know, I think that when you have individuals that just cannot get access to care because systems of care are non-existent or so underfunded or just simply so, the scarcity is just simply so great. And you add on the the, the stigma and the prejudice and the discrimination together with a, a legal system that just really doesn't have the skill sets. It is a a recipe for disaster. And we have been living with disaster. And so that really, I think all of those elements went into a court process that even though I was a new judge and they go, okay, I'm a criminal judge, I have a regular court, but they knew I was coming to the bench. They 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 had a task force, a diverse task force. Everybody wanted to change, but nobody knew what that change was going to look like. And finally, at the you know, almost like a, a leap of faith, you know, our public defender at the time was a chief public defender. Said, you know, I just want my own court. And I was lucky enough to get the call. And I and I feel that our court was, is, remains after 24 years, very unique because we consider ourselves a human rights strategy. And every facet of the court is dedicated to human rights.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely unique even. Even considering our wonderful Kentucky courts in Lexington and Owensboro and and elsewhere. So, yeah, I think you're, every member of your group has a little bit different understanding, it seems, especially as I read your book and, and went through it. And folks who are listening, I will have a link to her book, A Court of Refuge, in the, the show notes, of course, as well as any promotion that we do. So look for that and definitely pick it up. It's a great read. It's a short read. Every chapter is its own little contained little story. So folks They're that are beautiful. interested in they knowing that. Say. <laughs> One of the questions I had with A Court of Refuge is, basically, we had talked a little bit before this started recording about what caused you to write the book. I would love for you to tell that story, if you don't mind. Like, what was the impetus? and
1: You know, I, yeah, you know, we met when I was doing the, the book tour, mm-hmm. but I have been even when the court first started, I went on a national speaking circuit with the Department of Justice and just generally because every everybody wanted to know what we were doing and how we were doing it. We really I think kind of stepped on a tipping point, so when our court started in nineteen ninety seven I think Fox Butterfield's article, the special report of the New York Times, which was a groundbreaking. You know, special report in 1998 that just sent shockwaves, you know, through the whole country that jails and prisons, you know, are now our new asylums. We had already had the court up and running for almost a year. And so our court literally turned into a classroom. We had delegations and, you know, just from... Everywhere, filmmakers, journalists, you know, CNN, Good Morning America, you name it, wanting to know what we were doing. And it wasn't rocket science. We were very simply, you know, trying to identify those individuals that were, in fact, being arrested. Largely because they could not get access to care. And so we decided to turn the courtroom almost into a psychiatric triage unit. I, I handpicked a, a clinician, my in-court clinician, she's still with me. <laughs> After 23 years, I met her at the state hospital where I was overseeing a federal class action on behalf of the plaintiffs at South Florida State Hospital, which has since been privatized uh, very long ago. But I picked her for her humanism for her understanding of psychiatric rehabilitation from a person first perspective and embedded her right as part of the core team. So we were really looking, I think, uh, for those that, that were the sickest of the sick. So we could take somebody literally out of an inappropriate system of care, that being a jail. Use the court as almost like a funnel. And uh, I don't have any commitment authority under law. I'm a county judge, not a circuit judge. But I could issue an emergency transportation order based on my clinician's advice in the courtroom. And fortunately, that task force process laid a beautiful, beautiful groundwork for all these relationships now that wanted to work together to do something different, that we would no longer as a community, we just simply embrace this shared vision that we didn't wanna participate in the criminalization of people with mental illnesses any longer that maybe we didn't have grants and maybe we didn't have funding and maybe this little experiment wouldn't even work. But at the very least, what I was thinking, I don't know that I shared it with anybody, but what I was thinking is for our family members, at the very least they would know that they had a judge that was going to stand with them we were all together and we don't want to just create this conveyor belt of incarceration. But I do think that collaboration is extraordinary when these relationships are strong and people are working together very seriously. And fortunately, County wide, we were able to get because Broward County is a very large county, we have almost 2 million people. Yeah, and you know, all of our agencies some reluctantly, some more reluctant than others. Because remember, there was no new funding. I was asking organizations and entities really to break down their service models and serve this court, and they did. And, you know, in, in, the, in the years that we've been operating, it's, it's just a part-time court. I have a regular criminal division. I even do a, a small substance use prevention court now. But back then, you know, three days a week and in the mornings, excuse me, two days a week in the mornings and one long afternoon session. And we've diverted over 23,000 people out of our jail. So I think it's a, it's a lot to be proud of.
0: It definitely is, and, and I think the book conveys that grassroots communication and and that interagency cooperation in a way that a lot of folks are not seeing in their communities, but that I I foresee will probably be more important as our economic system changes and and just in general, mental health is is better understood. I hope by the average folks.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you, and I, I'm glad you brought up you know the economics because you know Florida ironically is the third largest state in the United States. We have no Medicaid expansion. We have very large pockets of poverty. We have people coming from all over the world. We have almost in Broward County alone, we have almost a million people uninsured. So when I say desperation leads to innovation, I'm not kidding. <laughs> you
0: know? Definitely, because yeah, yeah, definitely, Medicaid expansion helps here in Kentucky with folks getting access, whether they realize they can or not. We're still working on that education piece, still to this day. We've had it for many years. No, oh, it's, it's a big, yeah. it's
1: a really critical element, and we've we've never had it, and we we pay the price
0: yeah, and that's really sad because our most vulnerable are the ones who pay the price, the folks that are the hardest to find in a lot of ways are those Definitely. folks that weren't covered by Medicaid traditionally, and they really need it. So, yeah, interesting. I was wondering if there were any surprises in your career so far with the mental health court. That part of your career, I know you had a robust career before that, but are there any surprises about like who the clients are that you end up seeing, or family member surprises, or, or community? I think surprises? that's such a fantastic
1: question because I thought, you know, for for your viewers or for your listeners, your viewers. I started as a young lawyer. I started in the really in the in the, in the disability rights in the in the public guardi- guardianship sphere. So that was adults coming through our probate court who maybe because of some kind of Alzheimer's disease, disability, brain injury, intellectual disability, some kind of neurological problem, brain injury were deemed by the court you know, not to have the capacity to take care of themselves. And I was very lucky. There was a position open at a time where I was really questioning my fit in the law. I was really looking to do something more humanistic from a helping perspective. And sure enough, this this public guardianship position came came open. And I worked with incredible case managers. These were all adults. I took on my own caseload of clients to expand the service model. Probably one of the greatest jobs, positions I've ever had in the sense that I was, you know, you have to learn everything from advocacy, you know, to civil rights, to disability rights, to housing, to the Americans with Disability, you know, acts, you name it, you know, you had to learn it. And it was, it was just, I I just think it was just so robust. And it was really through that position that led me on a path to the skill sets for mental health court because it was about a year and a half later, I was asked to join a legal team regarding the oversight oversight and the implementation of a a pretty complicated consent decree on a federal class action that really centered around discharge planning. This was a deinstitutionalization federal class action, had a lot of controversy, but I was lucky enough to have an expert plaintiff's team of some of the greatest visionaries in this country, Mm -hmm. uh, in consumer rights, in psychiatric rehabilitation, in in, in just systems of care, in case management, you know, in assertive community teams. Just extraordinarily fortunate to have all these skill sets as, as a lawyer and then as a judge and wondering, am I going to be lucky enough? when I get to the bench
0: to use them. It's an interesting trajectory, isn't it? An interesting background a to get destiny. to the bench and the bench of this court of all things. I, When I was reading your book again, I was kind of struck by how mental health court has some people that I think not everyone who thinks about a mental health court would think about. You mentioned traumatic brain injury. You talk openly about some folks that have TBI who are in your court because that's the best fit for them. They need some additional assistance. They need treatment. They don't really need jail for what they're doing. You also mentioned, I think, a few folks that probably have intellectual disabilities, I think, in the stories. And I, tried, I think to, this, yeah, we tried to
1: kind of cross over, you know, that spectrum of, of, of disabilities because we did want to, we did A couple of things, you know, when you said the surprises, well, the surprises were, you know, I thought after being a public audience, you know, I knew the face of mental illness and the truth of the matter is I, the biggest surprise was I had no idea. When we started the court, I thought, oh, you know, I'll see, you know, people that I would have worked with. And yet, the people that were getting arrested were was everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, from nurses to professional athletes, you know, to professors to lawyers to accountants. I, it was it was it was really eye-opening to see the impact of untreated or undertreated mental illness and how important mental we always say, you know, there is no health without mental health. Mm-hmm. But the consequence of a lack of care or the consequences of not, of family members, just not understanding what it is that they are seeing
0: mm-hmm.
1: when a young adult, 19, 20, you know, maybe, you know, the, the research tells us it could take up to a decade for people to really understand, oh, you know, and get a proper diagnosis and that that was so so surprising to me and i and i feel just on that second part of your question marcy our goal was very simple you know we talk about passion you know if you don't have passion you really ought not be doing this work and if you're not and if you really don't understand the civil rights and the human rights aspect of it mm-hmm. you know then you're really missing i think the core the primary foundational reason why this why the way we you know we didn't have any any funds or any political will for CIT in my county at the time so what if you can't divert there what would be the next logical place if we're looking at a you know sequential intercept map if it's not coming from the community then it's gonna to have to come from somewhere. And so, you know, we really were looking to find people as quickly as possible. We wanted the diversion to be as rapid as possible. We didn't want people being in a jail cell who were ill for one minute longer than they needed to be because we recognized, you know, that having an episode having a psychotic break is no different you know than having a heart attack i mean in terms of the gravity in terms of the nature of the crisis and we were very serious and we and and and, and we maintain that not only the seriousness about how critical care is, but but the, but the but the abiding belief that we have always had, and that we maintain in recovery.
0: Yeah, I think that word recovery is what's so important, too, is that this court does not see people as a defendant specifically. You talk about them as clients, and you know, obviously members of your team call them patients, right? They're not just a defendant in this case or an offender.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I think that our, our language, we, always, you know, we, we say language is everything. And, you know, how do you take dignity and build it into the construct of a culture of a court? Communication, you know, is everything. And you you can see throughout the book that that communication scheme is extremely clear, crisp, empathic. This court is for you. You know, we literally took a courtroom and turned it inside out to say, we are here to serve you. What can we do for you? I mean, how many times, you know, do you think, you know, mental health consumers have heard that or people that have heard, you know, been homeless or just experiencing such degradation? We are here for you. I'm here for you. What? How can we help?
0: I think even us mental health advocates who've been around for a while forget how revolutionary the concept of psychiatric recovery is, right? How people do get better and when we, we treat do. them better and we treat them with mercy and we set up a system for them to, to get better in with that expectation. It's still fairly new and it shouldn't be, right?
1: It's, it's decades old. No, but it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's, no, it's not new. You know, and I feel that I've learned so much. You know, many, many years ago when I was so much younger, when the court just started, you know, I I was fortunate enough to be appointed to the president's new Freedom Commission on Mental Health back in 2002 and, you know, had an opportunity to, you know, work with amazing consumers like, like Dr. Dan Fisher. And, you know, I feel that, you know, that type of understanding that everybody has the, the potential to recover. And it only takes, you know, Dan told me, you know, one person, that one person who believes in you, who believes that you can get better. Well, I, I want to be that one person. And I've always wanted to be that one person. If, if, If I am the only person, let it be me. Correct.
0: Yeah. And I think wearing the judge's robe makes it just that much more impactful because not only when you're wearing that robe, you're not just you, right? You're a voice that is much needed from the community. So I think that's definitely something we think we should think about when we're thinking about mental health courts and expanding them or, or making them more prevalent throughout Kentucky and, and elsewhere.
1: Sure. Absolutely.
0: I only have one more question. It's a doozy though. <laughs> I'm going to worry you. <laughs> So you already mentioned a little bit about Florida not having expanded Medicaid, but my question is, as we face economic uncertainty due to the pandemic specifically, but just in general as well, do you have cautions, concern, or advice for advocates who are listening on mental health, but especially mental health courts?
1: Well, one thing I want to emphasize to to everybody, I don't go around the country advocating for mental health courts. I think this was a great innovation. I think it is an important tool in our toolbox. Mm -hmm. What I advocate for (laughs) is what you're talking about. (laughs) And what I'm advocating for is that we have policymakers and we have elected officials that really understand that without prioritizing and funding mental health, and, and behavioral health and, and really investing in prevention mm-hmm. and focusing on trauma and prevention of trauma and really doing all of the things that we know we need to do in order to build out our capacity of our systems of care and to make sure you know, that we have blueprints that include all kinds of arrays of housing Supportive housing, permanent housing, affordable housing that, that's dignified. You know, we really need our, our behavioral health, our mental health system, you know, to be vibrant, welcoming, well-financed, easily accessible, and, uh, and very broad-based. And I think that one, I think some silver linings, you know, there's silver linings, you know, generally in, in, in these type of, of, of crises, And I think that that the idea, for example, of all the things that we've learned in the in the in the legal system that, wow, we could hold hearings over Zoom. Mm -hmm. You know, every morning now, you know, my courthouse is generally open just for essential hearings. We're working on our soft opening. But for now, we're all working mostly over Zoom. And because my mental health court isn't meeting, I literally brought my mental health court services into our bond court. And I am now collaborating and supporting our bond court every single morning, seven days a week, and, and making sure that if people now are arrested and they need to go to hospitals or other referrals for outpatient, I'm there to do that. And it's been an extraordinarily positive experience, and I feel that that's a really good example of the fact that we have to, you know, we have to re- really raise the bar in terms not only of our advocacy, but in terms of our strategies, and where can we get the biggest boost? Well, the biggest boost that I felt I can provide is to get into that bond court, and luckily I, I you know I, I've been able to. And so there's a really great piece out. I just I tweeted it this morning, you know, talking about these, these strategies that we're gonna need. And I I just feel that education, awareness, and you know, new ways of thinking, of maximizing our systems that we may never have thought of before. We need to start thinking now, and I think technology has been a terrific experience for us during this time frame.
0: Agreed, and I think you've got some great points there about staying on the advocacy train and and working to not get to the jail in the first place, which is always a win. <laughs> so, well, you know, that's that's another story.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I can talk you know, for hours about that. that. We're ready for that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'd like to think. You know, I'd like to think no one will ever enter a jail system as a result, you know, of of untreated or undertreated mental illness, for example, but we know that does happen.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a good goal to reach for that it never happens again.
1: It's my vision, yeah.
0: Well, thank you for being so generous with your time today. Is there anything you wanted to cover that I didn't ask about?
1: I just know I'm so grateful. You know, I, I had such a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, you, you know, in Kentucky and everybody was so warm and kind and and interested and generous. And I, you know, I'm really glad that we had this chance to get together. And
0: that wraps up our interview with Judge Ginger Lerner Wren. Once again, her book is A Court of Refuge, and we will have links to that in the show notes. We want to thank our audio engineer, Jennifer Longworth of Bourbon Barrel Podcasting and our theme writer, Adam Savkoplas, for their work on this today. Thanks again to Judge Ginger lerner Wren as well for the use of her time. Signing off, this is Marcy Timmerman with Mental Health America of Kentucky. If you find yourself needing mental health resources or more information, follow up with us at mhaky.org. Your donations are always appreciated to help keep this podcast and our other efforts to educate on mental health going. Remember, there's no health without mental health. We hope you'll take care of yours. Have a good day.